Listen to this reading from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear also the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and redeemer. And this morning we also remember you are our good shepherd and our host. And so we pray that you would be near to us, guide us, speak to us, stir us, and call us home as we sit with your scriptures. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this summer we're focusing our sermon series on the Psalms, specifically on praying the Psalms in union with Christ for our own sake and for the sake of the world. That is, for the sake of our own personal growth in becoming more fully human in the way of Jesus, and for the sake of the world, whose brokenness, injustice, and pain can largely be attributed to humans doing life in the world in ways that are not like Jesus, and a world whose healing and flourishing begin with the changing of human hearts and behaviors. We're living in a moment, uh, we're all aware, when the world's need for healing and our own need for personal change are obvious and they're deeply felt. And as we continue our journey through the Psalms this summer, we come today to this 23rd Psalm, the most beloved prayer of faith that has brought comfort to so many in times of suffering and has provided words of faith and hope to so many in the midst of their struggle. And if you have been following Jesus for some time, I would venture to guess that you have your own memories of how Psalm 23 has touched your life in key moments of uncertainty or grief or not knowing what to pray. Perhaps you experienced these words uh, at a funeral that was particularly meaningful to you. You may have also had powerful memories of this psalm in a more celebratory context, a wedding perhaps, or a baptism, because the lyrical beauty and the confident hope of this psalm make it good for any occasion, really. There's so many of us come to this time of reflection this morning with deep personal connection to Psalm 23. But even for those of you who are newer to the faith or just 
curious or just beginning to read the scriptures, I would think you probably also bring your connection to Psalm 23 in one way or another. Because Psalm 23 is not only the most famous of the Psalms and one of the most widely known passages in all of scripture, it's also a cultural icon. The King James Version of Psalm 23 is one of the most recognized and referenced poems in the English-speaking world. So even if you've never opened a Bible in your life, you've still heard Psalm 23, or at least allusions to it, if not at a funeral or wedding, or an iconic speech or classic work of literature, then you've heard it from somebody like John Wayne or Pink Floyd or Coolio or Tupac, or from a television theme song like the one from the BBC's uh, The Vicar of Dibley or HBO's The Wire, or you heard it in the blockbuster movie Titanic in the 90s when you know the boat is going down and a priest is reciting the words of the psalm as the boat sinks. Or you've probably, I'm sure, encountered words of this psalm uh, in like the greeting card aisle at CVS or Target, you know, the sympathy religious section, um, where you can picture it, right? Where I'm picturing like a, a textured card, kind of lightly bumpy with a lavender, light gray, green pastel color scheme, you know, definitely some sort of plant-themed background, lilies maybe, or irises with foregrounded words of the psalm and like shiny silver foil letters and a heavily stylized cursive font. You know Psalm 23, one way or another, even if you don't realize it. It's where we get phrases like, the valley of the shadow of death and my cup runneth over and I shall not want, that have worked their way from the King James Bible into our English vernacular. And as we sit with this psalm this morning and we reflect on what it means for us to pray this psalm in union with Jesus for our own growth and for the sake of the world, I think we may just find that our extreme familiarity with this psalm is both a help and a hindrance. It's a help in that this psalm in some way is probably already planted in you. I imagine many of you have memorized it at one time or another, while others may only know a phrase or two, but one way or another, this psalm, it's in there, it's in you. And so there's a seed of God's word from this psalm sown in you that is ready to germinate if it hasn't already been doing so, and that's helpful. And my hope is that our reflection today will be fertilizer to help that seed grow and bear fruit in your life. But here's the hindrance. We all already have some well-entrenched, preconceived notions about this psalm that may be difficult to overcome on our way toward apprehending this psalm more fully and praying it more powerfully in the real moments and spaces of our day-to-day -day life. Because if we tend to think of this psalm in hallmark terms of the pastel color schemes and sweet idyllic, idyllic images of lambs and meadows, then our work toward understanding and inhabiting this psalm, it's going to be an uphill climb because this psalm isn't meant to be sentimental or sweet. This is a robust prayer of faith in the face of danger. And it's meant to shape a people of faith who live as pilgrims in a dangerous world. And as we come to God this morning and sit with this psalm in God's presence, asking God to teach us to pray these words in and through Jesus so that we may become more like Jesus. Let's take off our hallmark glasses through which we may be used to viewing this psalm and instead let's look through new lenses at this prayer of faith. First to see it as a prayer of ancient Israel, then as a prayer of Jesus, 
and finally as our own prayer in and through Jesus. So first, Psalm 23 as the prayer of ancient Israel. This prayer is attributed to David, the king of Israel, and for this psalm, or really any other psalm for that matter, to be of David, as the heading indicates, doesn't necessarily mean that David himself wrote it. Maybe he did. That's certainly possible. We know he wrote psalms. But more important than David's authorship is that we are intended to read the psalm in connection with David's life and character. He is the so-called king after God's own heart, who before he was a king, he was a shepherd. And just to help us get over the hump of our preconceived notions here, when you think shepherd, don't think little Bo Peep in a green meadow. Shepherding in ancient Israel wasn't gentle work. It was dangerous and required skill to navigate the inhospitable desert landscape, and it required strength to fend off predators and thieves who would threaten the flock. And in the story of David and Goliath, if you know that one, we learn that David's shepherding work is actually where he picks up his sharpshooting skill with a sling and a rock. Because before he was a giant slayer, he was a protector of the flock. And here in Psalm 23, the psalmist describes God as a shepherd, one who provides, cares for, leads, nourishes, and protects his sheep. And so this prayer of Psalm 23, it's offered from the perspective of a shepherd who is also a sheep, so to speak. The shepherd king who is himself shepherded by God the Good Shepherd. Some scholars also observe in this psalm a movement through the seasons of the year, from the springtime in verses 2 and 3, where the words translated as green pastures are typically used to describe the wild springtime growth that sprouts every year to the summertime in verse 4, where the darkest valley or the valley of death's shadow likely depict the dangerous wadis or ravines that a shepherd and flock would have to navigate, making them vulnerable to being trapped by predators or thieves who might be up in, in the hills on the steep sides, or it would make them vulnerable to the threat of flash floods, which in that part of the world uh, are a very real danger in the rainy season. So spring, and then summer, and then finally in verses 5 and 6, to autumn, where the house of the Lord in those verses is the temple, which was established in Jerusalem through David and then eventually through his son Solomon. And the feast would then likely refer to the Feast of Booths, or tabernacles, that celebrated annually in the fall as a remembrance of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt and how they lived in booths, tabernacles, the temporary houses, during that time of wandering in the wilderness, and how during that time God lived with them in a temporary house, a tent, the tabernacle. And the hopeful vision of this psalm is that the Lord would dwell not in a temporary house in the world, but that the Lord would dwell permanently with his people in the earth, and the house of God forever would be where the psalmist would live. Of course, this hope for the psalmist, it exists right alongside the presence of enemies, likely referring to the occupying powers that oppressed the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem for so many centuries in the history of that people. And so we also find in this prayer an expression of faith and hope spoken from an experience of suffering, spoken from a place of experiencing present-day disappointment and an ongoing longing for the full realization 
of God's kingdom of justice and peace to be established. Yet even in the midst of that suffering for the psalmist, this hope endures. And this hopeful vision comes to us as this Psalm of David, the king, who is both the shepherd of his people and the sheep of God's flock, following the Lord's leading through the wilderness and the valleys of this life. And the psalmist speaks of God here as both shepherd and host. In verses one through four, if you would look at your text, we see God as shepherd, shepherd who provides, I shall not want, I shall not lack anything. The shepherd who secures, he makes me lie down in green pastures, an image of security, of lying down in peace without fear of a threat. The shepherd who nourishes, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. The shepherd who guides, he leads me in right paths for his namesake, who protects and comforts, your rod and staff, they comfort me, and who instills courage. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil or no harm, for you are with me. God is shepherd. In verses five and six, we see God as host, the host who sets the banquet table for his people, the host who refreshes and heals. You anoint my head with oil. The host who gives abundantly. My cup overflows. The host who pursues. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The host who welcomes generously. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. And the host whose presence endures. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. God the shepherd, God the host, as seen through the eyes of Israel's king, whose hope for the world and hope for his own life are tethered to the faithfulness, presence, power, and promise of this God. As Psalm 23 became the cry of faith of the people of Israel during the centuries following the life of David, uh, during that time, the kingdom of Israel crumbled under the leadership of foolish and exploitative rulers. And during that time, a new hope began to arise within Israel, a hope for a new David, a new shepherd king who would follow the Lord as his own shepherd, to use his power not to exploit, but to serve, and in doing so would bring justice to the world. This is the hope that the prophet Ezekiel actually articulates in Ezekiel 34, where he says this, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I myself will be their shepherd and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them with justice. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord God, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Those are the words of the prophet Ezekiel. And in the New Testament, we discover Jesus as this one, this new David, this long-awaited shepherd king, who is not only the good shepherd, but also the faithful sheep, the king after God's own heart. So think with me, if you will, about Psalm 23 as this prayer of Jesus 
who is both our good shepherd and our lead sheep, as my former professor and good friend Doug Green likes to say, Jesus is our lead sheep. Uh, that's a phrase and image that has stuck with me powerfully over the years. But first, let's think about Jesus as the good shepherd. God says he will come to shepherd his, his people himself. And when Jesus arrives, he identifies himself in no uncertain terms, saying even in the Gospel of John, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. We see Jesus as the one who's willing to leave the 99 to go after the one who is lost, the one who is vulnerable, the one who pursues God's beloved relentlessly. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. We see Jesus when he feeds the 5,000. The gospel writers make, make a point to describe Jesus making his people to sit down on the green grass as he feeds them directly alluding to Psalm 23 and this portrait of the shepherd king. And of course, we see Jesus as the host too, don't we? The one who hosts the supper, who washes the feet of his disciples, who welcomes the sinner and the outcast, who gives this offering of a feast of his own body and blood to his people, even as they are surrounded by enemies on every side with no way out. The Gospels draw heavily and richly from Psalm 23 to show us Jesus as the shepherd who knows us and guides us and feeds us and protects us and leads us home to God, even at the cost of his own life. And so in Jesus, we discover the heart of God as our shepherd and host. Jesus reveals God to us. But Jesus also reveals humanity to us. And this is where I'd like for us to think about Jesus as not only the good shepherd, but as our lead sheep, as the true human, the one who embodies and accomplishes and models for us the calling of humanity to love God and neighbor fully and in doing so to bring healing, peace, and justice to the earth. Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, as the writer of Hebrews says. He's the one who entrusts himself to God's shepherding and follows God's leading in the way of love, no matter the cost. And what we see in Jesus, the crucified and risen one, is that the right paths that the psalmist speaks of, in which, the good, in which God the good shepherd leads his beloved, is not first and foremost the way of success or what we might think of as the way of things working out for us. But it is the way, like the way of Jesus, of costly love, of humility, and offer, often suffering as a result. Yet this path, this way of the cross, is the path that leads us home in and with Jesus to the house of God forever. And this is the path through the valley of death's shadow from which we need Psalm 23 to become our own prayer of faith. So let's now think about praying this Psalm, Psalm 23 as our own in union and communion with Jesus. It's interesting if you look at the Psalm, it's, it's one of those prayers that doesn't actually ask for anything. Did you notice that? It, there are no requests in Psalm 23 only statements. And I think that itself is instructive. Psalm 23, it's, it's more like God-directed, God-anchored self-talk 
than it is like most of the prayers that you and I probably typically are accustomed to praying. There's an aspirational character to this prayer. These words, they call forth a confident faith just as much as, if not more so than, they may testify to the confident faith of the one praying. And this is what we mean when we talk about praying the Psalms as both an expressive and formative practice. Expressive in that the Psalms give us words to name what is going on inside of us and in the world. But formative in that the Psalms actually shape what is going on inside of us, tuning our hearts and minds to resonate more deeply with the heart of God. And therefore, as it forms us and shapes us, therefore also changes what is going on in the world as God's people renewed and resonating with God's heart take up lives of seeking peace, justice in the world. What do our restless hearts sound like when we take up Psalm 23 and pray it with Jesus, not only with our lips, but with our lives? I think that's a question for us all to reflect on throughout the week as we sit with this psalm and practice it together. But sometimes the best way to see something afresh is to actually consider its opposite. And I love uh, this um, passage from another former professor of mine, David Paulison, who published an anti-psalm 23. And I'd like to just share that with you because this basically goes through the psalm verse by verse, declaring its opposite. And if you are anything like me, this anti-psalm so often sounds more like the confession of my own heart and the rattling of my own mind than the actual words of the psalm. Here's the anti-psalm. See if this sounds familiar. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It is a living death, and then I die. It's painful to read and, and a little bit 
haunting sometimes, I think, how some of those lies can sound so familiar to the cries of my own heart, um, and probably, I'm guessing, to yours as well. But here's the thing. The good news of Jesus and the hope of Psalm 23 is that none of those lies is true about you or about me, because God has sent his son, Jesus, who is the good shepherd and the generous host. He has come for you. He is with you. And the path through the valley does lead to the house of God forever because Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, and he is with you. Surely goodness and mercy have been in pursuit of you all the days of your life. The good shepherd who goes after the 99, who leaves the 99 to go after the one, has been in pursuit of you all along. He's your shepherd, and he's the host who welcomes you home. And he is the one who walks with you through the valley of darkness and death. And he is the one who will change us, who will help us to grow, who will call us to turn from things from which we must turn so that we may walk in right paths, seeking peace, justice, and love in the earth. And the hope that we discover in Jesus is that this path, the way of the cross through the valley, leads to the house of God forever, to the establishment of his kingdom on earth, which he has promised to bring when he returns. He's with you now. Do you know that? Can you take this psalm to your lips and bring it into your life to live it this week? And will you rest in the loving arms of your shepherd and your host? He is with you now. Do not be afraid, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We come now to a time of offering where we consider God's generosity toward us, the abundance from which our cup runneth over, and we offer ourselves and our gifts, our lives up to him. There are links in the bulletin where you, if you would like to give to either City Church or Liberty, you may do so. And you may also sit in this time of worship uh, offering yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Let's do that now. <laughs> 